0: Take your copy of the scriptures, please open with me to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. It is uh, an immense joy to be with you this morning. When uh, Randy called and asked if I would consider coming, I said, I need to check with the elders first and the elders at our church gave a hearty approval immediately. And so it's it's a delight to be with you this morning Dan and I have shared uh, many travels together, starting in Uganda um, in 2016, I believe, and there began a tradition where Dan and I would be walking somewhere, and he would look over to me, punch me in the arm, and say, hey, Terry, we're in Uganda. (laughs) Hey, Dan, we're in Fort Worth. (laughs) Uh, Such a delight to be with you. Uh, Dan has been a treasured friend uh, these years. I'm so deeply thankful, and Randy, likewise, has become a delight, an encouragement to my heart um, as I got to know him over the last year, 18 months, and so it's a delight to be with you this morning. Let me read with you God's word and then guide us in prayer. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became Mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better For us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Would you bow with me? Father, we live in challenging days. As Rod alluded to in his prayer, um, there are things about us in the world, wars and more wars and rumors of wars, and earthquakes and tumult. There is anger and hostility. There is hatred of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is suffering from living in this world and there is persecution from living in Christ. And then there are just the daily pressures and battles that we face living in this broken world. And where will we turn? Where will we get hope? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in your faithfulness. Our hope is not in even our own faith. But our hope is in the object of the one in whom we place our faith. And might that, and he, and you, be our confidence as we worship you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. They have been called the most crushing losses in sports history. The Hall of Flame Out, snatching defeat from the hands of victory. They are sports events that are considered to be among the most major failures, gaffes, and defeats. For years, some of you who are older will remember that ABC captured the sense of loss on worldwide, uh, the wide world of sports with an image of a ski jumper falling haphazardly off the end of a jump ramp to the words, The Agony of Defeat. Every sports fan has his own lists of particularly hard defeats, but... Here are a few. My own most worst remembrance of defeat, needing one more strike to win the 2011 World Series, the Texas Rangers gave up a hit, lost the game in extra innings, and then lost the next game to lose the World Series. Oh, the agony of it all. On the last day of the 1996 Masters Golf Tournament, Greg Norman led by six strokes, an insurmountable lead that was surmounted, and he lost by five strokes. Similarly, in 1999, Jean Jean Van de Velde needed only to shoot a double bogey on the last hole to win the British Open. He shot a triple bogey and lost by one stroke. And perhaps my personal favorite, though I wasn't there to view it, in spite of what Dan will tell you, way back in 1916, poor Cumberland College was outmatched by the Georgia Tech football team, losing by the ignominious score of 222 to nothing. (laughs) Yikes. Sometimes it seems like Similar kinds of defeats happen in the spiritual realm. We look to our spiritual heroes and we see people who accomplished great things. But all too often we also see great flaws. We see gracious people who suffer. Godly people who aren't rewarded. We look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 and it it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, and we look at the lives of those who live graciously and say, God, where's, where's the reward? It doesn't seem like it's come. And that certainly seems to be the case with many people in Hebrews chapter 11. And as you work your way through those stories, you see many who, yes, had faith in God, but also many who suffered, many who f- were flawed, many many who experienced much exceeding hardship. And as we work our way through the end of this chapter, as we're going to begin this morning in verse 32, we will find similar kinds of stories. What what should we think about these things? How are we to understand these verses in light of God's faithfulness and the fact that God is a rewarder of those who are faithful to Him? Are they stories of victorious followers of God, or are they stories of... Failed followers of God. And what should we think and how should we meditate as we consider these verses? These verses are a reminder that God is doing far more than just working in the lives of individual people. What we're going to find in these stories is a reminder that all of the stories, starting back with Abel and then moving forward, are not just stories about the individuals but they're stories about God's faithfulness to his people. Abraham's story was about God's faithfulness not just to Abraham but God's faithfulness to a nation. And so it was with Abel and with Noah and Moses and David and everyone else mentioned in this chapter. Their stories may end in apparent failure or apparent meaning apparent victory but their real meaning is what they revealed Not about the faithfulness of the men, but about the faithfulness of God. this, This chapter is commonly called the Hall of Faith, alluding to those who were faithful for so long. It's not really a story about the faithfulness of individuals, however. It is about the faithfulness of God who worked through weak, broken, incapable, unable, flawed individuals to accomplish His purposes. As we come to this chapter this morning we are going to be reminded of this central truth, that God uses frail people to demonstrate that He is always trustworthy. Frail people, broken people, suffering people, people under hardship, people who are discouraged, people who are inundated by the temptations of sin, And we see God's faithfulness. God uses frail people to demonstrate that he is always trustworthy. Perhaps you know somebody this morning who is frail and flawed. If you do, this is for that person. And maybe, just maybe, it's for some of you who are sitting here who are failed and flawed as well. This is a reminder that whether... His people win or lose in given circumstances. That's not the goal of these stories. The goal is to reveal that God never fails, that God is always victorious. And we will see as we make our way through these final verses of Hebrews 11, four demonstrations of God's victory. Four demonstrations of God's victory. The first is found for us in verse 32. The first demonstration of God's victory is the victorious people of faith. The victorious people of faith. Now, he's, he's told in this chapter a number of stories. He started with Abel in verse 4, and he moved on to Enoch, and then Noah and Abraham and Sarah, and then down through the fathers and Moses, and even people like Rahab. And now he gets to verse 32, and he says, And what more shall I say? Now, I don't know about you, but in my in my world and people that I interact with, when someone says, I could go on forever and ever, they just ran out of material. They got nothing else. Either they've forgotten, or they don't know, or they have no more idea. They've told you everything they know, however, at that point. But when this writer says, and what more shall I say? He means by that, I have so much to say that I do not have time or space to list every instance of faithful people who are sustained by a faithful God. He might try to continue the stories of faithful people, but then notice he also says, time will fail me. And I, I laughed when I read that. Time will fail me, and then he lists six more people. His point is simply... That this chapter and these names are not the totality of God's faithful people. He's summarizing. And here, from here to the end of the chapter, the summary is that there always have been and there always will be people who are faithful to the Lord. Now, we could take some time. I could go over time a little bit and we could build an entire sermon or two or three around all of the people that are listed here. Um, be at peace, be at rest, we're not going to do that today. Because I don't think that's the point of what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He lists all of these names because he knows they are familiar to the people who are going to read this. He is saying by the listing of these names and circumstances, you know these stories. And remember that these two were faithful. So who did he list? Uh, Verse 32, he mentions Gideon in Genesis excuse me in Judges 6 through 9 Gideon's faithful obedience is demonstrated in that God used him and 300 others to defeat 120,000 troops of Midian. God kept winnowing down the army of Israel and saying you've got too many you've got too many you've got too many. They got to 300 and he says, "Now you're big enough for me to do what I want to do. Now I'm going to send you into battle, and they defeat 120,000 troops. The moral of the story is God was victorious, and God was was able to be trusted. Gideon and Barak. Barak, along with the prophetess Deborah and Judges 4 and 5, defeated the kingdom of Hazor under King Jabin. Samson. You know, there are a few people in the Old Testament that you look at and you go, what do you do with this guy? Samson is one of those, right? Along with Solomon, frankly. His life was a mixture of obedience and foolishness and sin. And yet the end of his life is marked by repentance and God's favor on him. So that while he was blind and imprisoned, he killed 3,000 Philistines by bringing down the temple on them during a pagan festival. Find that in Judges 13 to 16. And Jephthah, he led the Israelites against the Ammonites in Judges 11 and 12. And And then King David. It's ironic, isn't it, that out of all the stories that are Expanded upon in this chapter, David just gets mentioned by name and nothing more. Here is the greatest king of Israel, the one with whom the promise of the messianic king was made. It, it, is, uh, it is David who from his meeting with Goliath to his relationship with Saul and Jonathan to his leadership of the nation was uniquely set apart as a man after God's own heart, which is what it tells us in Acts chapter 13. Here is here is the most unique the most significant of the earthly davidic of the earthly kings of israel and then samuel who obediently anointed saul and then david as the first kings of israel even though he understood the nation was being rebellious against god yet he obeyed god in the face of that rebellion and then The writer tells us at the end of verse 32, and the prophets. Add to all these six names the prophets, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It has been said that the writer of this letter recognized that in the Old Testament there was, quote, an embarrassment of riches as he contemplates the long list of the heroes of faith. God has been so gracious to the nation of Israel to provide for them man after man after man after man that was faithful to him in carrying out his purposes. Why did the writer mention all of these people? Why did he start with Abel and why does he move forward and now why is he summarizing with all of these names? He does so to remind the Hebrews of their position with God and God's ability for them. Uh, We go back to chapter 10 verse 32 Look at th- look at that for just a moment 10:32 He says remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated This was a This was a church, this was a people that were being persecuted, they were suffering, they were enduring, life was hard. In fact, it was so hard that many of them were thinking, you know what, maybe we've missed the boat on this Jesus thing. I don't know that that's exactly the way they said it, but that was the spirit of it. Maybe we've missed the boat, maybe we've understood, maybe we just need to go back to Judaism. If we go back to Judaism, we're not going to suffer anymore, we won't be persecuted anymore and life will be easier. And if we just go back to that ease of life, then we can give up everything that he talks about here in verses 32 and verses 33. The sufferings, the being made a spectacle of, the reproaches, the tribulations, and by participating with all those who are suffering in that kind of way. You can just lay it all aside and life will be good again. And the whole book is a call to them to say, no, Christ is the only way. Christ is the better one. Persist with him. And this chapter is designed to show them not just that there were others who also suffered and were faithful in the midst of suffering, but to show them that while others suffered, God was still faithful. That's the point. It It isn't a chapter about, look at these great men. It is a chapter to say, look at this great God who supported and helped these weak men. That's what this is about. In all of these stories, with all of these individuals, there seemed to be no chance of victory. Consider consider, Gideon, Judges chapter 8. Then Gideon and the, eight, and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. So it's not just bad enough that God's winnowed them down to 300. Now they're physically exhausted and they're still chasing the enemy. Verse 10, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men. All who were left of the entire army of the east for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. All that's left is 15,000. And the 300 had to look at them and go, piece of cake. We're outnumbered. I didn't do the math. We're outnumbered by, you know... uh, 40 to 1. No problem. Why is that? Why did, why did God winnow them down? Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For then Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. God never wants us to get to the point where we say, it's about me. It's never about me. No matter what God is pleased to accomplish through us, no matter how God is pleased to grow a, develop and mature a church, it's never about us. It's not about Dan. It's not about Randy, it's not about the elder board in Granberry, it's not about Terry, it's not about Keith, it's not about our elders. It is about the power and authority of God to use weak people to accomplish astounding divine purposes. All these names are a reminder that just because there is, an, there is opposition doesn't mean there is no victory. God doesn't pay attention to odds makers when God is on our side, we always win, even when we die. Hold on to that. I'll come back. The writer also uses all these names in verse 32 to remind us that God uses flawed people. Did you read that list, or did you follow along as I was reading and say, well, that guy, that guy had problems, and that guy had problems, and that guy had problems, and that guy was a weak leader? Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. It's not about the man. It's about the God behind the man. All of those guys had tremendous weaknesses and even spiritual failures. And God used them anyway. And isn't that hopeful for you? Isn't that hopeful for me? That God can take flawed, broken, weak people and still use us. John Calvin said this, In every saint there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. God still approves faith even when it's weak, and God still uses people even when they are broken. This is, this is God's astounding grace. Listen, there is no circumstance that cannot be overwhelmed by God, and there are no people that cannot be used by God. You broken today? You weak? You flawed? Are you hurting? God can use you because it's not about you. It's about him who empowers you and strengthens you. The second demonstration of God's victory that I want you to see is in verses 33 through the first part of verse 35. It is the victorious accomplishments of faith. Secondly, Let us see the demonstration of the victorious accomplishments of faith. So we've already seen that God uses weak people to accomplish His purposes. What did these weak, faithful people do? And here He tells us, starting in verse 33, not just the people who were involved, but the accomplishments of what they did. They conquered kingdoms. They overcame military opposition. That is true of every name that is named in verse 32 with the exception of Samuel. They, they overwhelmed nations and they, they defeated armies that were well beyond their capability. They performed acts of righteousness. That's probably not just a reference to personal righteousness, so I think that that is included as well. But in their execution of leadership and their official duties within their community, they practiced justice. In other words, they did the right things, not just personally, but corporately, in the nation and with the nation. They upheld the truth. They were just judges. Though oppressed in a variety of ways, they did the things that honored the Lord, and they upheld His truth. He also says, verse 32, they obtained promises. They didn't always receive all the things promised, but God in a variety of ways provided for them temporal promises to meet their needs. Consider just one example, Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21 after the nation after the nation has gone into the land and retaken the land and conquered the land and removed all of the pagan and idolatrous nations from the land. Joshua 21 verse 43 notes this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it, and they lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. So have you, have, you, have you caught the flavor of it already? The Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. Watch verse 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And it's Joshua's way of reminding the readers, God did what he said. You can trust him. And so when he says, when the writer of Hebrews 11 says they obtained promises, it's alluding back to stories like that and said, remember when God was faithful. He's been faithful in the past. He is a God who is unchanging. He will be faithful in the future. You can trust him. He shut the mouths of lions, the text tells us. Obviously a reverence, reference to Daniel chapter 6, but it might also be a reference to the story of David or Benaiah or even Samson. So even under physical affliction and physical persecution from the natural realm, if you will, God provided, God protected. It also tells us, verse 34, that... They quenched the power of fire. What's that a story of? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Says John Owen about those men. The faith of these men was considerable in that they were not assured that they would be miraculously delivered. And all they could do was commit themselves to God's sovereignty. And that's what they did. And Lord, we trust you. We don't know what the outcome is, but we know that you're trustworthy. And so God quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword, perhaps a reference to Elijah escaping Jezebel or Elisha escaping Jehoram from weakness. They were made strong. This this could be a statement for all of those that were listed in verse 32. This is is God's pattern. He uses weak people. He uses inadequate people. He uses broken people to accomplish His purposes, to demonstrate that He is the one acting. It's about Him and not about us. This is what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the... and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Abel didn't say, it's about me. Enoch didn't say, it's about me. Noah didn't say, it's about me, nor did Abraham, nor did Sarah, nor did the The patriarchs of Israel, nor did Moses, nor did Rahab. No one said it's about me. All of those weak people said it's about the faithfulness of God. The weak made strong. They became mighty in war. Similar to the first clause that we found in verse 33, they conquered kingdoms. It emphasizes that their might was not in themselves, but the one who fought for them. They put foreign armies to flight, Joshua against Ai, Gideon against Midian, and far more. And then notice this, verse 35, women receive back their dead. What's the great enemy of the follower of God? The great enemy is death. The final victor, the world would suppose, is death. And God uses several instances of resuscitation to demonstrate his ultimate victory. So the sons of the widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman. And um, readers undoubtedly would also think about the ministry of Jesus when they read this. Though it's not in the Old Testament, they would remember that Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain and his friend Lazarus. And they would undoubtedly think about his own resurrection as well. And they're reminded that God is powerful and God is authoritative and there is nothing that overwhelms God. I know some of you are suffering today. Some of you are hurting deeply. Some of you don't know where you're going to turn to tomorrow. You look at the week ahead and it looks ominous. And these stories remind us that God is not overwhelmed, he's under control, it looks impossible, but nothing is beyond the capability of God. What's notable in this section, it's a section that talks about the victories, if you will, of these who were faithful, but what's notable in this section is not what they did, but what their character was like. And what was their character like? What did the writer point to? And he pointed to one attribute of character. It's given to us in verse 33. Who by faith. Everything they did was predicated on their trust in God and not their trust in themselves. This chapter is about The God who sustained them and not their own accomplishment. They lived faithfully to the Lord and did not give up following God when they faced hardships. Says one commentator, the achievements of these heroes of faith stand enshrined in Scripture as evidences of God's power and also of God's honoring of those who will trust him and do his will. Says another writer, like all of these people, you and I need divine help. It will never work to try and obey in our own strength, but with the help of the Spirit, obedience is the inevitable result of God's grace working through us by faith. And who knows what He might accomplish through us. About three weeks ago on Saturday morning, I woke up, got up out of bed, did the thing that's going to give vitality to life, I punched the start button on the coffee maker. I learned that from Dan, actually. Dan shepherded me and discipled me into becoming a coffee drinker, and that's a true story. And somewhere early in the morning, I grabbed my phone, opened it up, and saw that I had some messages. I had a Facebook message, you know, that direct message thing through Facebook. And it was from a a former church member. Grew up in our church. I'd known her from the day she was born, literally. And uh, she had not been in our church in about 10 years. The last time my wife and I had seen her, we'd seen her at the county jail. And she texted me and said, Hey, Pastor Terry, I just listened to the podcast you and Ray Jean did, sidebar. We do a podcast for our counseling ministry, you know, the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. So we do a, a podcast once a month, and my wife and I have done one on couples counseling. So how do, you counsel, how do couples help counseling couples? And she listened to it. I didn't even know that she knew that our counseling ministry existed, never mind our podcast. How in the world did she find that? Hey, Pastor Terry, I just listened to that podcast. Do you think Regine would counsel me? showed it to my wife absolutely i texted her back here's what you do to get in the counseling queue within three days she turned in all the paperwork she's met with my wife and god is turning her life upside down who knows what god will do in accomplishing his purposes We see four demonstrations of God's victory in this passage. We see the victorious people of faith. We see the victorious accomplishments of faith. Now, thirdly, let me show you the victorious sufferings of faith. The victorious sufferings of faith. In the middle of verse 35, the writer makes a transition. Women receive back their dead from resurrection, he says. And then here comes a transition. And others. Until this point, we've seen the blessings of following after Christ. Now we start to see some of the difficulties that are incurred by those who are faithful to God. And the emphasis is that some faithful people did not experience lives of ease. The commentator Westcott calls what follows this transition as victorious suffering. In other words, there is suffering, but there is a kind of victory for those those of us who have suffered, which he's going to summarize at the end of this chapter. There is victory in suffering. Not all suffering is loss. It feels like it. I get it. You feel empty, broken, weak. You feel like there's no recovery, but you have to see with the eyes of God. And so let us see in these verses the victorious sufferings of faith. He tells us in verse 35, they were, uh, they were tortured, not accepting their release. That word tortured is used elsewhere, about stretching a skin tightly over a kettle drum and then beating it. And it has this idea of intense And savage beating. Their skin is taut, and somebody is just drumming them like crazy, beating on them. And we get from this that they might have been able to be released if they had taken a stand against God. Consider, for instance, just one story 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. Here comes Sennacherib from Assyria, and he threatens the nation of Israel. Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. And when he heard them them say concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations, which my fathers destroyed, deliver them, even Goza and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden, who were in Talasar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sefavir, Sefav, the S people and the Hinnah? You can do that in the Old Testament, by the way. <laughs> and Hezekiah took the letter, a letter that says, give up. Just turn to us and you'll be okay. If you don't, we will vanquish you. And if you don't think we're going to vanquish you, then just look at everybody else that we've, that we've obliterated. And so Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed. End of the story. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Who's God? You think you can escape me? Says Sennacherib. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so some said, you know, if we just abdicate, we might be released. That was the promise that Sennacherib made. We're going to choose the Lord instead. And so they endured torturing, believing that the final reward was from God. Others experienced, he says, mockings and scourgings. These are verbal insults that are given along with physical beatings. Yes, not just that, but also chains and imprisonment. This is the climax of the mockings and the scourgings. Maybe he has men like Joseph in mind, who was falsely, falsely imprisoned. Men who were stoned, not just suffering, but being put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. Traditionally, this is what we believe happened to Isaiah the prophet. They were tempted. Some have wondered how temptation could be considered suffering, but temptations to abandon God and pursue the world are strong and deadly. In fact, just look further up in this chapter to verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He understands that there are pleasures to be found in sin, but the end of them is destructive and brutal. There's a weightiness to temptation, and that's what the writer means here. They were put to death with a sword. This might be a reference to defeat in war, or perhaps a reference to Uriah the prophet, or perhaps just a reference to martyrdom in general. They were those who were in sheepskins, going about in sheepskins, and in goatskins, and being destitute, and afflicted, and ill-treated. These these are those who were destitute. They had nothing else to wear, so they just put on the sheepskin. They lacked the basic necessities. No one cared for them, and no one cared that they did not have enough to care for themselves. Not only did they not have appropriate clothing, but he also notes that they were wandering about, verse 38, in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They had no permanent home. They lived in solitude. In fact, their their only residence was not in on the earth, but in the earth, under the earth, as it were, living in unhabitable places because that was the only safe place from the world, the only place they could afford. Listen, they were absolutely alone. They're marginalized, hated, persecuted, created by God for relationship. Many had no relationship on earth to encourage them and sustain them. You read that list, and it's sobering, isn't it? And you're thinking, well, Terry, I thought we were going to come and hear something encouraging, uplifting this morning. And this is is a downer. (laughs) It's life in this world, isn't it? Or is it just in Granbury that it's this way? Life is hard. How is it that the writer is using this to encourage the people? He's using it to affirm that whatever they are suffering, They're not alone. Their situation is not unusual. Ostracism and hatred from the world are normal for the follower of God and follower of Christ. Let us not have as our goal ease of life and suffering free lives that doesn't exist for the follower of God. That's what Jesus promised. If the world hated me, It will hate you. What makes you think you could get a hate-free life if the one you follow is hated and reproved and crucified? His other point is that even when we suffer injustice and harm, we can accept it knowing that whatever we lose on earth, we cannot lose heaven and final redemption if we are in Christ. The world and the persecutor who can kill our body cannot take away our lives. I was reading this morning, I read... Every Sunday morning, I read in the Psalms. And one of the Psalms I was reading this morning was Psalm 27, where he concludes this way. Do not deliver me over, David says, to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. So they're lying about him, and then they're wanting to persecute him. And then he says, verse 13, I would have despaired unless... I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm going to see God's goodness yet. I think that's David's supposition that God will sustain him on this earth before he dies. But I think it could also be an allusion to the fact that he remembers that God made him a promise that on him would be established a throne that was an eternal throne over which the one who follows after him will not ever be removed. And he says, I know there's a day coming when God will reign, the Messiah will reign on this throne. And so he concludes verse 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. If loss and suffering... And hardship and jail and death is our destiny on earth. There is still victory for us. And that's the conclusion to which he goes in verses 39 and 40. The final demonstration of God's victory, the victorious hope of faith. Notice how he summarizes verse 39. And all these, I think... I think he's referring perhaps particularly to the people he's just mentioned in verses 32 to 38, but really it could go back all the way to the beginning of the chapter, starting with the recitation of all of these who were faithful, all the way through the Old Testament, starting with Abel. Despite being God's people, he notes, they gained approval through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. They gained approval. What does he mean by that? It means that God approved of them. He uses that very same phrase earlier in this chapter. Verse 2. You, you know verses 1 and 2. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Approval from whom? Approval from God who looked on them and looked at their lives and said, You're mine. You belong to me, you have trusted in me, and we are in fellowship, we are in relationship. And it is those people, he notes in verse 39, though they have gained approval through their faith, they had faith in God, they trusted God, so they had salvation, they had the approval, the imputation of righteousness given to them, yet in spite of that, they did not receive what was promised. Oh, they received some partial payments. We saw that in verse 33, right? They obtained promises. They got some of the promises. But they didn't get the end game. None of them saw the Messiah. None of them saw the Messiah seated on his throne. They had enough from God to make them trust the faithfulness of God. But they were still looking for the final end. Why did God make them wait? It just almost seems unfair, doesn't it? Why did God make them wait? Verse 40, because, there's the reason, because God had provided something better for us. What's the better provision? Christ. Under the Old Testament, they just had sacrifices that could not ultimately satisfy God. The Messiah had to come, The Messiah had to be rejected. The Messiah had to go to the cross. The Messiah had to absorb the infinite wrath of God against sin of all those who would believe in him. The Messiah had to be resurrected as a demonstration of God's acceptance of his payment for sin so that we might have salvation and so they might have salvation. So he says, God provided something better for us. What's the better? The better is Christ. But they're not left in the cold, are they? So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. If we don't get Christ, then they don't either. Their perfection, their hope, their end, their confidence is in the provision of Christ who would come after they were gone. So they look forward to Christ. And they were made complete. And we look backward to Christ and we were made complete and all of us these in this chapter and we in our circumstance are dependent on Christ for our salvation and yet even while we look back and we clearly see the provision of Christ who has been given for us we like the Old Testament saints don't have everything yet either do we? Says one writer, even New Testament saints should expect hardships and persecutions until Christ returns. Indeed, Paul suffered for Christ and forced him to look to the future. And if you follow God, you do not get it all now. In Christ, you do get it all. But you get it on the final day when Christ looks at you and says, well done good and faithful servant. While the Old Testament saints in this chapter didn't receive everything, still they trusted God that he would fulfill his promise. And though we haven't received everything yet, God will still fulfill his promise. Oh, brother, don't despair. God is faithful. Turn back to chapter 10. As Paul, or excuse me, as the writer, it's not Paul, As the writer of this book introduces this section, he reminds them not only of the suffering they have endured, but he also reminds them of the character and the nature of God. And so he says in verse 35, admonishing and encouraging them to persist in their faith in Christ. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. What's their confidence? Christ. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. It's hard. You need to persist. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. God made a promise. And if you don't persist, if you walk away from him, you won't get the promise. Now watch this. Verse 37. For yet, in a very little while, he... Who is coming will come. And he will not delay. It seems like delay. It's been 2,000 years since he ascended to heaven. But in the economy of God, how long is that? Two days. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He's not delayed. He's not forgotten. He will come back. And then he says, verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Oh, friend, don't shrink back. Don't give up on the promises. He will come. On October 16, 1555, that's a couple of years ago. Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, were burned at the stake together in London. You can, in fact, still go to London and see a plaque on the street where they were burned at the stake. J.C. Ryle said that next to Thomas Cranmer, there can be no little doubt, excuse me, there can be little doubt that no two men did so much to bring about the establishment of the principles of the Reformation in England. These were two God-ordained, faithful, God-used, God-saturated men, and they were first among the martyrs under Queen Mary. What was their offense against Queen Mary that got them martyred? They didn't believe that at the table of communion, the juice was actually the blood of Christ. And they refused to give in to that Catholic doctrine. And so they were martyred. Ryle recounts the day of their martyrdom. He says this. On the day of their martyrdom, they were brought separately into the place of execution, which was at the end of Broad Street, Oxford, close to Balliol College. Ridley arrived on the ground first, and seeing Latimer come afterwards, ran to him and kissed him, saying, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide it. And Then they prayed earnestly and talked with one another, though no one could hear what they said. And after this, they had to listen to a sermon by a wretched renegade divine named Smith, and being forbade to make any answer, were commanded to make ready for death. Ridley's last words, before the fire was lit, were these. Heavenly Father, I give thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to a profession of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, Have mercy on this realm of England and deliver the same from all her enemies. Latimer's last words were like the blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. Quote, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day by God's grace light such a candle in England as I trust, shall never be put out. And as the flames began to rise, Ridley crowd out with a loud voice in Latin, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And afterwards, repeated these last words in English, Latimer as vehemently on the other side of the stake, Father of heaven, receive my soul. Did those men lose? Were they failures? In this world, yes, they lost. They lost their lives. But in the tradition of the flawed people of Hebrews 11, they maintained their faith in the perfect, unflawed God of glory. He kept them to the end and into glory. As we struggle this day with trials and difficulties and sufferings and persecutions, let us similarly maintain our confidence in God who will not fail us. He will be faithful to keep us and to accomplish His good purposes. That's what victorious faith is. It is believing and trusting and relying on God to be Faithful to himself and to ultimately provide victory even in the harshest circumstances of life for those who belong to him. Father, we thank you for this word. It's easy when we get to passages like this just to run very quickly past the list of names. But oh, what a treasure trove we have here. Of those who were not only faithful but those who demonstrate your unceasing faithfulness. Father, might we find hope, encouragement, strength, fortitude to keep walking by faith, not in our strength, but faith in you, that you will accomplish your good will for us, no matter how our life here ends, no matter how deep our suffering No matter how great our difficulty, you are faithful and you will keep us to the end. We praise the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.